0: You know, if I were buried in a coffin for two weeks and I crawled my way out, the first thing I'd want is a shower. Just saying. I'm Tom Panaris, and this is Origin Story.
1: Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are!
0: I don't know who you are or where you came from. From now on, you do as I can do, okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavid, which is part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. I've got just one comic book this time around, and that is Web of Spider-Man number 32, which came out on July 28, 1987, had a cover price of 75 cents. It is part four of the Craven's Last Hunt storyline, and the cover is my favorite of this entire six-parter, and probably the most well-known. It shows Spider-Man covered in mud, having just literally risen from the grave with the headstone behind him that reads, Here Lies Spider-Man, Slain by the Hunter. Mike Zeck really outdoes himself with this one, and it just hammers home the point of why he is one of my favorite comic book cover artists of the 1980s. Inside, our story is titled Resurrection, and the creative team is the same as it has been since the beginning of the storyline. J.M. DeMatteis writer, Mike Zek pencils, Bob McLeod inks, Janet Jackson did the coloring on the original issue while Mike Zeck and Ian Tetralt recolored it for my trade, Jim Salakrup was your editor, and Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief. I guess I should point out, by the way, that the editor-in-chief of my collected edition is Tom DeFalco, since this was published after Shooter was ousted in 1987. We open with a naked Peter Parker, curled in the fetal position on a white page. Ned Leeds then appears and says hello, but when Peter points out that Ned is deceased, the apparition of Ned crumbles before him and he finds himself alone again. Peter then appears to be crawling through a tunnel while his thoughts echo Craven's I am the spider mantra from the last few issues and he is a spider crawling through the tunnel. He's attacked and as he is, he starts thinking about how he is not the spider and how how that's the huge mistake that Craven made, thinking that he was some sort of supernatural being or something. He then begins crawling through the tunnel as Peter and then starts thinking about Mary Jane as he pushes on the ceiling of the tunnel. Eventually, he breaks out and comes to the surface in the same costume in which he was buried. Spider Man heads into the building near the graveyard, which is not a church but is Craven's mansion, estate. As he walks around looking for Craven, he sees Spider Man. Issues of the Daily Buger that have these Spider Man Berserk headlines, and realizes that he's been in the ground for two weeks, and also realizes that Craven has been masquerading as him. Meanwhile, Vermin is somewhere in the mansion, being kept in an electrified cage. Mary Jane is at home, worrying about Peter. She tries to watch TV, but she can't, and she throws the remote control in frustration. But before it can hit the ground, it's caught by a web, and Spider-Man appears at the window holding it. He takes off his mask, and they embrace. Sometime later, Mary Jane comes out of the bathroom to see Peter putting his costume back on. She wants him to stay, rest, and talk about what happened, but he doesn't have the time for it. He needs to find Craven right away. He tells her he'll make it home okay, and then heads out. His spider sense guides him to Craven's building, and he sees the villain standing there in a black Spider-Man costume, waiting for him. This is not a dense comic. Alright, well, let me rephrase that. It's not dense in the way that some of the other books that I've reviewed for this show are. The G.I. Joe comics definitely have had their fair share of dialogue and multiple plot lines and action packed into 22 or 24 pages. And those Adventures of Superman comics I reviewed toward the beginning of this uh, podcast series had a ton in them. But here, DeMatteis has decompressed the storyline over these six parts so it reads pretty quickly. But what it lacks in density it makes up for in DeMatteis' ability to write well, as close to horror as a Spider-Man story you can probably get. The scene where Peter's crawling through the tunnel has him as a spider, and then some weird monster things attack him, and he crawls out of the back of the spider all goopy. This is definitely upping the ick factor. So thanks, guys. But I like that scene for what it represents, and what Damatéus has Peter say it represents, which is that he is not the Spider. He is a man and he says that that represents both of his weaknesses and his strengths. I like when a superhero's humanity is important to his character and I think that Spider-Man is a character who especially thrives on having that humanity on display. I know I'm not breaking any new ground with this statement But from the Spider-Man that I've read, I've always seen that there's a really important personal story among all the high-flying adventure and wacky supervillains. You don't necessarily always get that with Batman, for instance. Yes, there are plenty of Batman stories where his humanity is a factor. In fact, if you were reading Batman in 1987, you were about a year away from a death in the family and then a lonely place of dying which explore the idea of Batman's humanity and what happens when he deliberately tries to shed that humanity. But it's not always there. With Spider-Man, it seems to be always there, and I think that DeMatteis is doing a great job with this. Now, I realize that Spider-Man is strong, but I wonder how much of his getting out of the coffin has to actually do with Craven rather than his fighting his way out. As the story goes on, the repeated panel this time is a black Spider-Man mask that slowly reveals Kraven's face, and he keeps saying he's coming until he says he's here. So was it Craven's plan all along for Spider-Man to escape the coffin and see what Kraven had done to his reputation? Was he planning on it taking two weeks? Or did he, did he just figure that at some point Spider-Man was going to have to make it out alive? Either way, it sets up a confrontation with Craven in Part 5. And we get a reminder that Verma is still there, and that will be important in Part 5 and Part 6. The reunion with Mary Jane is done well, and I think it's implied that right after she sees Peter, they have sex. And that's not something I understood when I was 10, so there you go. I mean, I knew about sex, but whatever subtlety Demetrius, Zach, and McCloud were trying to get past the comics code... Got past me as well. And I like that. even though he knows he should rest, Peter isn't going to rest until Craven gets what's coming to him. Again, this storyline is great, and it's living up to its status as one of the most memorable of this period. And thankfully, we've only got about another week until the next part. Although after that, it's about two weeks until the conclusion. But I think we'll live, because between that, there's some really solid comics. I'll be back right
1: after this. Do you have unexplained mood swings? Do you have difficulty communicating with others? Do you exert a fishy odor? Do you experience undue aversion to flames or revulsion of bonfires? Have you suffered from long periods of amnesia or unexplained blackouts? Do you like to toot your own horn, speak of yourself in Shakespearean tones, or sound like Dean Warmer in Animal House? Are you a sociopath? Have you senselessly slaughtered innocent undersea creatures? Is your family tired of every vacation having to be to the beach or on a cruise ship? Do you have a secret collection of green fish-scale Speedos? Then you may identify with the subject of our new podcast, Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader. Longer than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. mariner the of the deep, will be wearing demon. The of Atlantis is the Prince of the Deep. Join us each week as we review the next installment from Prince Namor, the true Submariner's adventures in Tales to Astonish, starting with the quest in issue 70 and moving forward through the silver age of Marvel Comics. Check out our blog at serialsurfaceinvaders.tumblr.com for a new show every two weeks or so and a steady stream of ridiculous aquatic content. And please, if any five or more of the above conditions apply to you, seek professional help. I'm actually going to take
0: this time to talk about another comic, uh, because I usually tell a story, but this got me thinking, because I recently got it in a trade and I reread it, and, and it's important to me. It's actually an important part of this origin story, but it didn't qualify for the list of comics, either in the Comics Prehistory blog series that I did before launching Origin Story, or the actual Comics here because I didn't. Own, I would eventually own it, but I didn't own it in 1987. I would just read it repeatedly because my friends had it, and that comic is GI Joe Yearbook number three. I recently bought and read the GI Joe Yearbook trade from IDW, which collects all four of the yearbooks. Uh, those were the annuals for the GI Joe series, but what made them different from the annuals that you would see from like the X Men or Spider Man or Superman or what have you is that in addition to a story, the yearbooks had text pieces about the Joes on TV. They had a recap of the previous year's worth of stories using text and panel excerpts from uh, the books from the past year. So it truly is a yearbook in a way, and, and almost it almost reads like a magazine. G.I. Joe yearbook number three was already out by the time I started reading the title. number of my friends had it. I think I may have tried to find it in the back issue bins at Amazing Comics, but I never got my hands on a copy until much later, probably in the 90s when I was on a Nostalgia Kick and bought a handful of Joe comics from Mile High. But the comic became like... Well, I'm not saying it's... Nevermind. But it became Nevermind in the same way that Nevermind was an album that my friends had and my roommates had that I never had, had to buy because I always borrowed it for years and years and years and years. I never got a copy of Nevermind until about maybe 2001, 2002 because everybody had it. G.I. Joe yearbook number three, I would go to my friend Tom or my friend Evan's houses, and if we were tossing comics around, I would go for that one. And it wasn't for any of the the recap text or, or the, um, the G.I. Joe uh, in TV part. Although I liked the year in review section, it was really cool. But it was this main story. And there's a main story in Judge Joe Yearbook number three that is called Hush Job. It's a silent story. Now, if you've never read this comic, J.I. Joe Yearbook 3, and you know a little bit about J.I. Joe, you're probably thinking, but Tom, wasn't the famous J.I. Joe story in number 21? And you'd be right. And if you really want to fan explain it, you'd be like, well, actually, the silent G.I. Joe story is silent interlude, and it was number 21 where Snake Eyes rescues Scarlet. Then you tell me about what real fans know, etc., 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 and what I would hear is... What I would hear wah. But this is the sequel to Silent Interlude. I didn't get the chance to read G.I. number 21. It came out before my time. Jeez, it came out way before my time. And I couldn't find a, a copy of it because it was hard to come by. This is the sequel to Silent Interlude. Hama wrote it, Ron Wagner penciled it, Kim Mulder inked it, It got the basic gist is that Scarlet disguises herself as a cleaning lady to gain access to the Cobra Embassy in New York, and Storm Shadow infiltrates by going all Wolverine through the sewers. Snake Eyes manages to short-circuit Dr. Mindbender's brainwave scanner, there's a huge fight involving ninjas, the comic ends with what seems like the Baroness arresting our heroes but it's really scarlet in disguise, and she, Storm Shadow, and Snake Eyes literally walk out the front door of the Cobra Embassy. Oh, and we got a panel of the Baroness tied up in her underwear. It's not the last sentence that made the comic memorable for you, me, by the way. It's the silent story aspect. At 10, I had never, like I said, I never read Silent Interlude. Like, it, it, it came long before uh, reading G.I. Joe was even a thing for me. And honestly, issues further back than 45 were either hard to come by or more expensive than I was able to afford. And the back issues have been in Amazing Comics, and I had no other way of getting back issues than the one store. So this was my first silent comic story, and out of all of the stories, not covers, of this G.I. Joe era, this one stuck with me the most. I want to say it's because it was something I'd never seen before, and the novelty is definitely part of it, but there's also the fact that it's just so well done. To make a silent story work, you need to have probably a better script for your artist than usual because it's all description. And I guess if you were following the classic Marvel way of plot, then art, then script, you'd still have to have this in top shape. Plus, the art has to be good because that's all there is. I like Ron Wagner and G.I. Joe but this is beyond what I have seen on the other issues. I think some credit does need to go to Kim de Mulder, whose inks give the pencils more depth and more detail. And I also think that Wagner knew what he had here and really took the opportunity that he was given in terms of drawing the pencil work. That's a short review in a sense, because I I didn't want to focus on the comic. I wanted to focus more on the impact it had on me. Like I said, it was the first, and for a while, the only silent story that I had read. I honestly didn't know that comics could be like this, so in a big way, it's a landmark book. And it was one of a handful of books that I find important to me because of the way it made me say, I didn't know you could do that. This is the silent story. Aliens Number 5, the first uh, black and white Dark Horse series, was the first comic I owned that had profanity in it. Shaman's Tears number 1 from Image, believe it or not, was the first time I remember seeing full-on nudity, or at least a nipple on a woman. The Clerks comic book from Oni was the first one that was outside of the realm of superhero sci-fi or horror for me. And I know that a lot of these are not landmark books for the industry or the medium, but I think it's important to note that they show how your entry into something or broadening your mind or branching out does not always happen in the way you are expecting? I don't know. It's more organic. I mean, I read Watchmen when I was 17, and I read Dark Knight when I was 12 or 13, but I wasn't totally blown away with what Miller or Moore were doing with superheroes because, well, I just wasn't there yet. Hell, I didn't read Sandman until I was in my early 20s, and I still feel like I didn't get everything I was supposed to out of it. Don't get me wrong; I liked Sandman, and I certainly really liked uh, Death: The High Cost of Living. But there's a point where me not getting everything made me wonder if I was like too stupid to see what everyone else was saying. <laughs> and it's not just comics. I mean, there are, I've turned off Oscar-nominated independent films. I've listened to entire albums and I've honestly wondered what I was missing. <laughs> you dumb bastard. It's not a schooner,
1: it's a sailboat. A
0: schooner is a sailboat, stupid ass. You know what? There is no Easter Bunny! Over there, that's just a guy in a suit! And if I was ever going to be smart enough to see it. Well, Lord! Where the hell do I get to see the goddamn? And then at some point, I got the two word answer I was looking for, which is say it with me, who cares? It was a Murtaugh moment, to be honest. I'm too old to keep tabs on how up to date I am or how well-read I am on something, especially when it comes to comic books. I mean, there's tons that I want to go back to. There are entire swaths of Marvel, from like even going all the way back to the beginnings of Marvel, that I want to go back and read because I've never read it, and I'm fascinated by it, and I want to read up on it. But there's a difference between... Wanting to read a lot of old Spider-Man comics, because I've never read them, and people keep talking about how much they love them as a kid, or they love them now, and feeling like you have to read something out of obligation, because a character is so popular. By the way, this is why I don't podcast about anything related to Batman anymore. Don't get me started. Stella's already heard my rant about bat splaining and bat fans. Anyway, I think it speaks to my experience as a comics fan, especially one in the 90s or me in the 90s, that I really had to branch out from the mainstream stuff on my own. Because the friends I did collect comics with were right there with me. We were all collecting the same stuff. So none of us was bringing anything new to the table when we went to the comic store every month. We didn't have our Obi-Wan. We didn't have the guy, the girl, who helped us take our first step into a larger world that some would with some of the comics or that I did in some way or another with some movies or music and things. And I'm not regretting that. It's fine. At least I took that first step into a larger world and at least I never went so far as to say I I don't read comics, I read graphic novels because like, ugh please you pretentious jerk I just kind of found my way on my own and in a way I have to credit I love how they did this moments like the main story in G.I. Joe Yearbook 3 for getting me there And that'll do it. Next up, next week, is part five of the Craven's Last Hunt saga in The Amazing Spider-Man number 294. In the meantime, please leave a review on iTunes. Go to the Facebook page. Go to the website, popcultureaffidavit.com, and you can email me with any feedback you might have, especially on Spidey or thoughts I've had here and there at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening and take care.